Catch new episodes of Dial the Gate weekends at youtube.com slash dialthegate. And for the latest schedule, visit dialthegate.com. Welcome, everyone, to episode 169 of Dial the Gate, the Stargate Oral History Project. My name is David Reed. Thank you so much for tuning in. We have James Tishner this episode. He was visual effects producer on Stargate SG-1 for six seasons, supervisor, producer, and then producer on Atlantis Season 2. And he's also responsible for a couple of uh, stories from Stargate SG-1. And he actually uh, uh, was second unit director on an episode of SG-1 called Abyss. We're going to get into all of it in just a moment here. But before we do, if you enjoy Stargate and you want to see more content like this on YouTube, please consider clicking that like button. It makes a difference with YouTube and will continue to help the show grow. Please also consider sharing this video with a Stargate friend because I know you have them. And if you want to get uh, notified about future episodes, click the subscribe icon. Giving the bell icon a click will notify you the moment a new video drops and you'll get my notifications of any last minute guest changes. And clips from this live stream will be released over the course of the next several days, um, more likely weeks, on uh, both the uh, GateWorld.net and Dial the Gate YouTube channels. Uh, one thing real quick, Anna Galvin was scheduled for 4 p.m. Pacific time. Um, she's had to postpone, so I'm going to be posting a notification in uh, the YouTube uh, channel for that. Uh, so, But in the meantime, uh, I am fortunate to have James Tishner, visual effects supervisor and producer and uh, writer of Stargate SG-1, joining us in this episode. Sir, um, thank you so much for being here. It really means uh, a lot to have you, and I've been looking forward to this conversation for a really long time. Awesome. Thanks, dude. I really appreciate you calling me in. Absolutely. Um, it. I'm just kind of... Okay, so let me let me put it this way. When, when, <laughs> when you say visual effects supervisor or visual effects producer, what does that mean? Because some people picture you as being on a computer creating the visual effects. Some people picture you as being like on set. Where does the line fall for that particular role? Right. So um, specific to Stargate, let's say... Uh, this was in an early time when visual effects was just getting going in TV. Um, I think we had Star Trek before that. And obviously there were some shows previous to that, but it was a lot harder to do visual effects. And this was right in the cusp era when um, visual effects became much more affordable and digital. So a person like me was hired to come into production, read a script and consult with the producers and the director about what is the vision? What do they want to actually do? And how would we best execute it? Um, And then I would follow that, the execution of those shots, the visual effects shots through all the way through post, through shooting, posting, uh, the revision process, computer generated elements process, the compositing, and then the final into color. So on Stargate, I was kind of doing everything 
the only thing I didn't do was sit on the box. We, I would generally hire an artist or take the shots to an outside facility to do that work for them. But I would sit and work with all the directors and with Brad Wright and the producers to get the idea of what they wanted. We would design the effects, which back then was not near as reliant on CG. You had to come up with different ways to do things. We'd shoot a lot of practical elements. We would you know, figure out what are the bits and pieces that we can bring together into the compositing suite. Um, this was also uh, very high-end expensive gear and wasn't the kind of thing that you would do on your laptops anymore. Or back then, now we do that all the time. Um, so yeah, so I guess the VizFX supervisor is sort of the person that helps to define the workflow and, and get the shots through a producer. Um, that kind of came in a little, I think it was Dan Curry actually who introduced that job. Uh, in TV, the visual effects producer is almost a little bit more of an overseer of a whole team. And uh, as Stargate grew and got bigger and a little more complicated, we sort of built more people into our teams and stuff. So that's why I got that credit as well. But I still ultimately was a supervisor, a very hands-on person when it comes to the effects. So it all starts with the script and bringing that vision to life from there all the way through to the end. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Like, How... Go yeah. ahead. Well, that, I mean, it's just all on the page. Like, it's um, particularly working with people like Ra Robert Cooper and Brad Wright, uh, who were definitely a couple of the best showrunners I've ever had the chance to work with. Um it, every every episode was all about taking that script, going through it, determining what could be done in camera, uh, what had to have been done as a vis effect. You know, some things are very obvious. Spaceships are going to be a vis effect. Um, but other things, more subtle effects might be able to be done in camera or uh, mostly in camera with a little bit of visual effects help. Um, but that was always the conversation is like, and, and what is the, what is the story point? Like, what's the, what's the purpose of this shot and what's it do for the story and how do we do it sort of in the most cost-effective, simplest way. Um, and yeah, that's, that's essentially the prep into figuring out. What Speaking of cost-effective, I mean, we're, we're at the, the end of the 20th century here when, when uh, SG one is airing um, there's, I imagine not nearly as much reliance like you indicated on, on uh, CG like there is now. Um, would you find what would was, was your responsibility primary? Okay. So yes, to, to get, get, to get the story to the screen, would you then look at it from a, from a cost uh, analysis in terms of, okay, what's, what's going to be the quickest way to achieve something or what's going to be the best look for something or, how would you kind of analyze it given the situation? Yeah, I mean, for Stargate, we had a pretty good resource. It was a fairly high quality, high profile show. It was on Showtime for the first five seasons. So there was a nice, uh, nice budget put aside. And even when they went to um, sci-fi, which at that point was kind of an upstart um, mm -hmm. new um, pay-per-view, or not pay-per-view, uh, uh, whatever it's called. Yeah, like a paid subscription service essentially subscription channel um stargate was a was the premier show so it was always well funded having said that we you know every show every movie is always outside of the realm if, you, if you're not outside of your resource realm then your your vision isn't big enough so uh i think brad and robert were 
constantly balancing the cost of an expensive TV show, and not just with the Visivex, but the whole right. whole production process, uh, with trying to keep you know as big and cool and um, exciting a vision on the screen as possible. So there was always a budget debates. There was always uh, horse trading, essentially. You know, like mm-hmm. we'll we'll do these big shots, but we'll cut these other ones because maybe they're not as big a story point as these big shots are going to be. Um, you know, the expectation on my end was always to come up with ways to do shots, uh, simpler or, uh, you know, do this one shot, this one expensive shot this way, and then we can reuse elements to do all these other shots. Um, that's all sort of part of the job. So, you know, and nowadays there's huge shows, right? Like Netflix spends a fortune on VisFX on their premiere shows and HBO spends a ton on VisFX. So it's not like VisFX has necessarily gotten cheaper. The just the um, the scope has gotten probably broader and the necessary team size um, when doing mm-hmm. things with CG and at, at computer-based um, graphics kind of stuff is a lot well, more expensive just because the crews are bigger. And, and we've gone to you know, 4k in many cases now, whereas, you know, Mm -hmm. we were, we were shooting on, on film and, you know, everyone didn't have the, I mean, I'm sure, was there a certain amount of future proofing that you were considering when, when doing a lot of these shots were you thinking, you know, okay, we, we need to get this good for, for showtime or, you know, at some point this is going to be placed on another medium. You know, I want to make sure that this is good for that as well. Did that, was that occurring to anybody or were you just Um, headstone getting things done? No, the the biggest uh, thing that we did in the early days was yes, shooting on film, but the we would switch formats. So for all non VisFX stuff, they were shooting on sixteen mil, super sixteen, and then we would bring out the thirty five mil cameras to shoot plates on, so that we get a denser, um, uh, bigger palette. Essentially, we could zoom in and post, or you know, use you just get a better uh, fidelity image out of those thirty five mil plates, but um after a certain point i think the whole show ended up being 35 mil and then we made the transition into hd which we shot film and then transferred hd because up until that point it was all standard definition right so you have mm-hmm. you know basically a seven whatever <laughs> i can't remember what stand, seven um, standard def resolution is anymore and tfc uh, completely gone uh, it's 480 but, isn't it? uh, 480 yeah like which is <laughs> tiny like i think i right I don't even know what is 480 anymore. Like even, you know, nothing is less than HD. So my home movies are 480. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like if that, maybe, like maybe some of the cheaper phones shoots 480 max or something. Um, uh, so there is always a, you know, it's all a trade. Like you're always trading what the resource you have is with uh, what's available and you do the best that you can at the time. And for sure, future proofing is a, is a thought, but when we first started shooting Stargate, I don't think HD was ever even on the horizon at that point. So it was only until season, I want to say four or five, that that became part of the conversation. You did an episode in season four, uh, which featured a computer intelligence coming through the the Stargate that takes over Amanda Tapping's character, Sam. Um, that was, uh, and that was shot, great. I believe, in HD. I think that that episode yeah, was the that test was because first it was... episode that was HD. That was Alan, our editor. I'm forgetting his last name. My memories are just <laughs> as I get no, older. Absolutely, it's been a while. Uh, you, you'll be able to tell me um, Alan's last name. I should know this. He's probably going to watch this. He'd be like, "How could you forget <laughs> my last name, you bastard?" Let's see here. 
uh, Alan Lee. Yeah, that's right. Alan <laughs> Lee. You know, forever. It's all the old names. So yeah, he was, he got to direct that one. And that was, it was sort of a big, like, wow, we're bringing out the HD cameras. Now keep in mind, we would, we had shot for a couple of seasons uh, on film cameras, but then done the effects at HD, but that was a big jump. And when you say, you know, we're going to 4k, because a lot of shows do deliver 4k now, that leap, that exponential leap of resolution is always kind of um, a pain point when you first make the jump, but inevitably processes are worked out pipelines are uh, are developed and that just becomes the new norm and and then you just wow. don't even think about resolution anymore so you mentioned um uh, a lot of uh, some of these elements were shot originally on super 16 and then eventually moved over to 35 was that an expediency thing was that a cost-cutting thing um uh no so the super 16 would have been like any scene that was not uh vfx heavy Okay. Any shot that didn't have a VFX in it would be shot Super 16, and then we would pull out 35 mil cameras to shoot VFX plates on. I see. So, so you would, would if you had an eagle eye, you could sit and watch the grain structure of the scene, and you could see that the grain was a little bigger and a little bit more present on all the non-VFX stuff, and then the VFX shots would come in, and suddenly it would be a cleaner image. Um, we would actually. Uh, put a, a 16 mil grain on top of our vis effects to try and match the grain across the wow, scene. Oh, I did not know um, that. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, that was sort of the main uh, conceit when we first started Stargate. And that was something they were doing in Outer Limits as well. Cause Outer Limits and Poltergeist and Stargate were all kind of in the same um, workflows. We all worked in the same office together. It was all the, many of the same producers and the post, the MGM post workflow was designed and used similarly across all three shows. So I've had yeah. this conversation with a number of people who are like, why isn't what SG one is on Blu-ray now, but it was up-resed. It, oh, yeah. it looks, it looks acceptable. Mm -hmm. um, but everyone's like, why didn't you just go back to the, the 35 millimeter negatives and do the whole show? And it's been, we've been trying to explain to everyone the show wasn't entirely shot on 35 millimeter. It was, a, this is not TNG restoration that we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. You know, this is the show used various elements to, to bring it to life. And the, the raw material, you just can't go and do that. You know, it would be, uh, and the, the material that there is, you know, we're talking millions and millions of dollars in restoration. So they instead went to the HD up res route, which is. Yeah. I mean, the main reason you can't do that is we don't, we didn't have a film workflow. So if, if you're making a movie, you end up with a negative cut of your film. So you shoot everything on 16 or you shoot it all on 35. You might post digitally, but ultimately you'll cut all the negative film together. So hand cutting the film that went through the camera into, uh, into the final movie. And then from that, you create your prints and all your answer prints, et cetera. But when you're doing TV, you'd abandon the film almost immediately. So we shoot on 16 or we shoot on 35, but then we do a standard F transfer onto tape. And then from then on, it's all tape. It's all digital and you'd have, there's no way to go back to create the negative cut um, without, yeah, I mean, it would just be, it would take forever. And then also none of the effects were done on that film. So you would end up uh, with a bunch of nice negative cut uh, non-effect shots. And then all your effect shots would be up because you would have to, you would have to literally go back and, uh, and redo the effects for a film, for a film finish. 
which ironically enough, years ago, I was working in a, a facility here in Vancouver and we were asked uh, to bid all the Buffy the Vampire Slayer shows to do exactly that, to basically go in and redo all the effects so that they could release a, I feel like it was a Blu-ray at that time. But yeah, so they could actually do that kind of exercise of doing the most high fidelity Umbra as possible. But I don't know. It's uh, cost wise. I don't think it. Uh, I don't think the sales benefit is there for a right. Maybe for a movie. Maybe for a one off. Maybe you could pick like an episode or a pilot, or the pilot maybe or something. One of the you know the the season finales and do potentially kind of a special collector's edition kind of thing or something, but. It would cost a lot. Like it would, the effects cost would be comparable to what they were originally. You would have to basically spend the same amount of money again. It wouldn't just be a simple process. Do the files exist on hard drives still? Do you believe, or do you think a lot of that stuff is gone? Um, I think gone is probably a too strong a statement. It's buried. Let's just put it that way. And there's there, everything is backed up on tape backup likely for the early years dct tape probably before dbc tapes before that and those all are living in some archive somewhere most likely but it would be uh tricky to find them and is do the machines that actually play the tapes back even exist anymore <laughs> right that's the thing some museum somewhere probably <laughs> yeah exactly on ebay you have to right. get, I mean, get, get on the tapes on ebay it it, so it it would probably be doable, but we're talking one or two, three, four year process in the millions, right? Yeah, it would be a big, a uh, big, a big job, a big expensive job. But um, if somebody should start a Kickstarter, and then we'll do it, <laughs> and then all the fans will self finance that one, and uh, and then we'll have this really great single episode of Stargate that just looks awesome at thirty five mil. Yeah, I, I mean, mean, I would, I couldn't even, you know, like so much of our stuff was shot as elements, so you'd have to go find all those elements. I think it would be along the lines of what Star, what George Lucas did with those Star Wars films, right? Like that whole restoration was a huge process, many tens of millions of dollars, right. um, just for a then, few movies. Yeah, like whatever. Well, yeah, exactly. Did I don't even remember? Did they do anything other than the first one, New Hope? Like, did they do? They probably did. They restored operate. all three of them and put them they out did, in 1997. Yeah. yeah. That's right. So, With all the CG at the time. And, you know, right. and then also you kind of get into this whole thing of like, do you really want that? Like, yeah. it's kind of of its time, right? Like a tape, a cassette tape with music playing in a cassette recorder is of its time. It's uh, That's the format of the era. And, and it has its own aesthetic quality. Like nowadays you see movies where people are trying to mimic cheap vcr like those little handheld camcorders right because it's like of the time so i'd say you know in some ways you don't want to try and blow out all of that old the grit like you love anybody who loves movies loves the texture of film and the last thing you want to do is like remove film texture in a restoration so i'd say it's 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 a it's kind of a unique There are a couple of movies that I have that if I have ever watched, I I have a a VHS to to digital uh, uh, suites and and hardware to make it work. And I I also have uh, the the, uh, Blu-rays of a lot of the films. But for a couple of these movies, when I go back and watch them, I like to watch them with the commercials intact when yeah, I taped it totally. on VHS on yeah, TNT yeah, in 1990. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's the same for me. Because yeah, I was eight yeah, years like, old, and I enjoy watching yeah, the, you know, it. 
the yeah. the Excedrin commercials where the first half you're sitting with the lady and she's like rubbing yeah. her head and then at the end of the commercial break <laughs> yeah. the headache's gone. Yeah, you know? I do too. I, I my dad was in the movie business when I, and made documentaries when I was very young, so he bought like the very first Betamax machine, let's say in 1977 or something ridiculous wow. like that. And and there was no there's no place to go rent tapes, so he just bought a bunch of blank tapes and we recorded stuff off TV. And my memory of Jaws is Jaws, the TV cut of all of the intros and outros, the commercial breaks, like all of it is part of that experience of knowing that movie. So, and that, you know, just because we had five movies, that and the sting and, you know, three others, and we watched them 2000 times. And it's just, that's part of the joy. Right. And I think removing all of that, I get it. Like I get it. Movies do and TV shows and everything deserve a a reconstruction or a restoration for sure. But there's also the emotional experience of what Correct. it was at the time that we're kind of going back to. It was your dad how you got um, interested in getting into this industry? Was he? Was he yeah, there? pretty well. Yeah, like I was on film sets when I was seven years old. As early as that, I remember. Wow. And the visual effects were what interested you from the beginning? Did you find yourself getting no. like, involved in editing? Where was where was yeah. take us take so, us through the route? Sure. The my my career started when I was ten, literally. I, I was my dad's assistant editor on his documentaries. I helped him uh, clean up film trims. He had a flat bud moviola in his bedroom and he would uh, cut all these films and I would be called in as one of my chores to go and like clean up trims, put them into reels, and then uh, sink rushes, all of that kind of stuff. It was like... Exploitation begins at home. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. Yeah, that was how I got my allowance. It's like mow the lawn, shovel the walks, and sink the rushes. Um, (laughs) And my cousin, actually, my cousin Dylan, who he's cut uh, many, many big, really prestigious films, he also came and stayed with us on that farm one summer and learned how to edit and, and rush, you know, sync rushes and handle film so this was uh yeah it's sort of in the bones um when i got out of high school didn't necessarily want to go into movies but it seemed to be a good track you know like you need a job so my dad set me up on set on the show that he was working called danger bay i got to grip i got to electric i uh then went into production office was a pa for a long time but my heart was in writing and still is. I love writing. So I worked in the story department um, when those became something, partially because I was comfortable with computers and the story department coordinator needs to format scripts. So I learned how to run a program called Scripter, which was a wild old program. You would take a, um, a word file and kind of run run it through Scripter to actually create your scripts with the C numbers and all that kind of stuff. I worked on a show called The Odyssey, which was a wild, cool, young CBC show about um, this kid who goes into a coma and it's kind of his coma life. And it was actually Ryan Reynolds' first show, I think, <laughs> here in Vancouver. And a lot of people worked on that. That's how, And then that's how I met Brad Wright. Brad was one of the writers on that show. And we kind of nerded out together because we were both really comfortable with computers. So he and I would um, kind of share scripter tips and and so nerdy uh, screenwriting. <laughs> There's nothing now. wrong with that. I know it's great, and uh, and so we, you know, I would say like we were uh, work friends from that, and he, I knew he had written a spec script for Star Trek, I believe, Next Gen, 
and I that no he did that yeah i don't i don't think it was ever produced but uh i this is and you know like i don't even remember if he was one who told me that or if there were other writers like hart hansen who's uh yeah. the bones showrunner he was also a writer on them on uh on the odyssey i think he wrote actually first season on stargate too i believe like maybe the Rings bell. yeah so this sort of little community of people in early Vancouver in the early days when there wasn't a ton of production, this is sort of like uh, Jump Street was around and, and uh, Stephen Canal had started the North Shore Studios. This was where I kind of got, you know, made my bones, right? So um, I ended up getting hooked up with a guy named John Gidecki, mm-hmm. who uh, is still a really good friend and I think is probably the greatest effects person in Canada. He's definitely one of the most passionate Viz effects people I know. And he's still incredibly passionate. He's doing Star Trek and Lo- or, uh, Superman and Lois right now. And he, I was hooked up with him because the production coordinator that I was PAing for was like, Hey, you like computers and Viz effects is computers. So you should meet this guy. And we met and we instantly got, got along great. And he brought me in as kind of his PA assistant on, Outer Limits for a few episodes and then we did a movie called Warriors of Virtue which was Kung Fu Kangaroos shot by uh, the guy who shot Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon and edited by the guy who edited like early John Woo movies it was an awesome movie cool people super weird like (laughs) literally Kung Fu Kangaroos um, but I then started working as a coordinator for John doing effects and learning that craft as it was just coming up. And then he got onto Stargate and I went with him and that's, I see. And so then Brad and I, who hadn't talked for a couple of years, kind of reconnected there. And, uh, and that was wonderful to be able to start working with Brad again. Yeah. What, um, so we, we had an idea you indicated of, of a process for like a, a typical episode from, from script to post. Mm-hmm. I also have, have noticed uh, in conversations uh, talking with a lot of you that, that there were, there were arcs for seasons as well in terms of oh, yeah. like heavy introduction, then pull back and then, Oh my God, we're running out of money and then finish strong <laughs> was like, seemed to be the arc. Is that the arc? The, the, <laughs> that wasn't well, the arc I was thinking you were talking about, but yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> there was an indication that there was a bit of um it not like a not like a psych out but like uh and not that this would happen all the time but but they would want to give the writers the idea to to save a little bit more before the end just in case we went over um so that we would come out on you know t- come out in the Very black funny. in the end is that does yeah. that sound familiar I would say so. I mean, I don't think that that's wrong, right? Because again, you want to push that boundaries. You want to do the most you can possibly do to make the best show you can possibly make. And if you come in under budget, then it's not on the screen. You haven't done your job. And I think Brad and Robert, again, are John Smith as well, like are some of the best producers I've ever worked with ever since. Like I think in a lot of ways I was really spoiled in those early years. And I had a little bit of a, just didn't have the knowledge that I have now of how mm. lucky I was to be able to work with people that good. Mm. And they were just so good at being able to like know their resource, know what is worth putting on the screen, know what matters for the story, uh, know that, yes, it is important that we spend this amount of money on, you know, a pyramid blowing up where we run a big model through a bunch of trees or, you know, whatever we're going to do, we blow a whole bunch of stuff out at Stokes pit. Um, 
they just knew that you kind of have, you have to have, you've got to open strong. You have to have a really big middle point in your season. And then you got to go out big too. And, and then in between you kind of connect the pieces with stories that are a little bit more, uh, a little smaller, a little more character focused um, are no less entertaining, but are not going to be like your big, you know, not every single episode has to have the big massive effects. And we couldn't, you just wouldn't be able to manage it, right? Like at the time in Vancouver, Vancouver was a very small city. Mm-hmm. There was, uh, I want to say three or four VizFX studios. There's Rainmaker, Northwest Imaging, Image Engine, uh, Prospero, or I don't know whether they were involved in Stargate. They were involved in the previous projects. Um, I'm for sure missing somebody. Lost Boys was there too. And that was kind of it, right? Like Vancouver didn't become this massive VizFX hub until the government changed some uh, tax incentives. And then all of a sudden the DNAGs and the MPCs and the ILMs and all of these big LA based studios started moving into the city and changed the landscape significantly. But back then there was a very small little community and Stargate and Poltergeist and Outer Limits to a certain extent as well. Like that was a lot of work for these studios to be able to manage. And and the producers knew that and they knew that if they overtaxed the VizFX teams, the effects would not look good. So they would spend the money, but the stuff would be rushed um, and it just wouldn't be worth it. Right. So being able to manage that and plan it out, like we know we're going to be really busy in the fall once we get into the final episodes. So let's, you know, balance that with a couple of big summer episodes and then we can tail it off while we finish those ones. And then we're now prepping and shooting the final ones. It's all kind of part of a master plan for sure. And then they could actually build their story arcs for the seasons around those, that kind of symphonic shape as well. I I have a personal question. I'm not sure if you've heard of the visual effects triad where you can have any two of the three. You can have it good. You can have it cheap. You can have it fast. Have I ever heard of that? (laughs) How much truth is there to that? Oh, it's a hundred percent true. <laughs> a thousand percent true. It's absolutely true. Oh gosh, the there's uh, no. I mean, there's no. What is it? Cheap, fast, and good. Yeah, yeah. Like if you want fast and you want it good, it's going to be expensive. Like you just have to spend a ton of resource to get it really, really quick. If I don't know whether you can do cheap effects that are good and just take forever, I'm not sure that part of that triangle works that well. I know in theory you could like set up a tiny little crew of people to just grind away on something for a long time and then that might not cost as much money, but that part of the triangle I think is a little unstable, but yeah. I mean, the, you look uh, a lot of the, the sci-fi channel uh, movies of the week, you know, they can have it fast <laughs> and they can have it cheap and the good yeah. is questionable, James. Well, like I got, you know, I, I do those. I've done some of those in the last few years. It's uh it's difficult. Like there's definitely two tiers to this effects. There's a big, budget well supported maybe a good schedule but maybe not um in terms of time world actually the big shows know that they gotta if they're gonna spend all that money they want to give the proper amount of time so they do plan for that and then there's just a ton of stuff that's done really fast really cheap expectations are uh ridiculously high kind of you know ignorantly high honestly to be honest and uh and they just come out the way they come out and it is what it is, right? Like a lot of that stuff just comes and goes. It's not like we're not going to be sitting here in 30 years talking about right, that. Right, exactly. But, you know, <laughs> part of me would be like, I did it, but I don't want my name on this. 
<laughs> it's not my best. It's it's not quality people work. Like that. Yeah, no? people want people. Are, producers are not keen on people not taking the credit. Like they don't want to. Everybody thinks they're making a good movie, and they want to believe that everybody who's on the film is also believes they're making a good movie. Nobody sets out to make a bad movie. So the last thing they want is a bunch of crew members telling them, "Yeah, I'm not James Titcher on this one. I'm actually uh, Frank." McGillicuddy like well, that's my other credit like why do you have this other credit well I don't know maybe you know they don't they don't love that kind of thing so well just, I, it is what it is how often have you had to look at something Mr. McGillicuddy and see <laughs> that you know I, we need we need more time with this we need more time and we're out we're out we have to send it out oh. as it is one of my favorite uh, uh, sci-fi miniseries uh, is uh, Children of Dune Oh, yeah. And it won for visual effects. Mm -hmm. And if you look in some of these shots with the ornithopters, if you freeze frame, the characters aren't, um, the, the characters are stick figures. Yeah. They sent yeah. it out as stick figures and they won yeah. awards for it. I think right, I mean, in, right in frame, right in front of the camera, yeah. in front of the camera. There's no movie that's ever been made that didn't run out of time and money. Like James Cameron when he makes Avatar runs out of time and money. It's just the way it is. Like it's an infinite spiral of resource. And at some point you just have to call it. And that's where it, that's where it ends. Like that's where the project is what it is for all of time, unless you go back and do a big restoration. So, yeah. you know, Stargate was no different, like as good as the resource was as great as the time was and as reasonable and, and brilliant as the people who were involved were from the artists to the producers to the exec producers everybody cared a lot about that show and, and wanted a really good job there was tons of times when the effects did not follow through like i noticed one of your questions early on was uh for matter of time and matter of time i think was second season yep. say. and that it. was that was kind of my first really big show and that is not a show that i'm not i'm proud of like that show was really 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 hard it was shot in all kinds of really complicated ways to try and get the effects of this sort of gravity over here instead of on the ground and there are times in there where the effects just don't work like the effect the uh, green screens were not well lit at points because we were too ambitious with the camera moves I hadn't worked out the angles that the cameras had to match properly at points. So sometimes a camera angle on an element wasn't right for the background. There were tons of mistakes in there. And, uh, you know, even when we were making it, Brad was like, I think we've succeeded with this stuff. This part didn't work, but overall, I think, I think the show holds together and we've learned a ton. And next time we do something like this, we'll know better of how to do it, which was exactly right. Like, we sort of hit our peak in seasons four and five of just, we really know how this works. We know what our resource can hold. We know when we're being too ambitious and we know, uh, we now know the tricks to actually pull a lot of this stuff off. And I think Star Trek, you could go through Star Trek's who they always had a bigger budget and more time than we did, but they have lots of points where their effects just, they just weren't able to pull it off. And when it's early days of VisFX too for TV, there's so much like, I don't know, maybe this will work. What if we shot this thing and put it in and bring this other thing in here and we'll add a glow to that. Maybe that's going to work. Maybe it won't. We just won't know until we do it. And you and have to do it because you're, you on, have the to do it. And you're not, on the cutting edge of this stuff. It's totally. never been done and, before. And in feature film, there is um, uh, much more room for uh, mistakes. So if you 
go down a path, uh, a strategy. This is how we're going to pull this effect off. And it doesn't work. You finally see it put together. They tend to have more room to be like, okay, let's go back and try a different tactic. Like we can rework this or we can rebuild this. But with TV, there's none of that. You, you committed and you rolled the dice and, uh, and you just hope for the best. And then if it did, wasn't working, you would, you know, Brad would come up with a really clever way to kind of cut around things or we would, you know, throw a big glow over top of everything. Or you just, you do something that then the idea ultimately isn't to watch things frame by frame like that. Right. I get it. Like a fan really loves their, their experience of their show for sure. Um, But there's so many cheats that we have to do that for sure, if you watch every frame, you're going to see the stick men for sure. But if you're just watching it as a piece of entertainment and that shot comes and then the next shot comes and I'm in the flow, it just that none of that matters. None of it matters. I loved watching stuff evolve too. And some of, some of the effects would, uh, uh, in my estimation, well, I mean, okay. Let me let me back up. The Kawoosh, for example, when you first mm-hmm. started off doing the Kawoosh in early season one, mm-hmm. the it was a practical water effect that was being used for parts of it. Um, it was always a practical water effect, and, and it was it, always the same element all through the whole time I was there. I'm not sure what they did after I left, but oh, okay. Because yeah, I we, like later on, like by season two or three, I assumed that that was that was much more of a of a digital shot because I couldn't see the water anymore, especially around like when it comes back down at the mm-hmm. the explosion. There's there's mm-hmm. like this rush on the sides of the gate where the mm-hmm. where there's there's some kind of actual water there that went away later on in in as the seasons went yeah, along. That would be so basically the way that worked in the Coles notes of that is season one we had uh we had myself, uh we had John, my boss, and then Ted Ray was uh the other we had alternating supervisors and he was the alternating supervisor. And Ted Ray is a fantastic practical effects guy. Like he's just the most he ended up going on, I think he shot a number of seasons of uh, Game of Thrones as the uh, set suit wow. on that. So he has like he's like next level. Yeah. John as well is like this. I'm not you know I'm not trying to say that Ted was that they were any different. They just had different strengths, obviously. Mm-hmm. And John's actually really strong with practical too. But Ted was like so we had Ted set up in John's studio in Toronto this big tank of water, and we would fire air cannons into the water, and we would shoot it from all these different angles. And what we did was we shot front on side, three quarter, one side, one from the back. Like you just shoot a whole bunch of different elements. And each angle you do like 20 different times and you light it a different way. Like you just try all of these different things to gather all of these elements up. And then we have this now this element library that we go when we shoot plates for the show, we would match the angle that we shot the tank at. So if you if you want the kush to come straight at you, you'd set the camera up on the stage looking straight at the Stargate. And then we would take the element of the water element we shot and we composite that in. And then we would blend it in with a CG because the uh, just the the Stargate itself was CG. That wasn't a water element. And then so over time, what changed was the compositing got better. Mm. We had more time to refine it because it was an effect we were doing a lot. Every season we would try and redo a new because we had a library. So, the you know, as you I'm sure as you watch it, you sort of see the same shot over and over. It's kind of like the Star Trek right. uh, spaceship. Same shots of the, the ship again. And yeah, again. exactly. Just different right? plates. 
that's part of a, that's part of smart resource management. Like you create shots that can become part of your library that everybody understands. It's a transition. It doesn't have to be brand new every single episode, but we would do new versions and, uh, or we would do it in different locations. And then we just got better at being able to like, okay, now when the water element settles and we transition to the CG element, we can use like a ripple effect to kind of transition from the water to the CG. And we would put a drop into the CG to create the ripples and times to the, to the kloosh, et cetera, et cetera. So I think what you're not, you're not necessarily seeing a different element. What you're seeing is just a refining of the compositing process. Mm-hmm. Brad talked about uh, puddle passes. And I know oh, yeah. Bruce Woloshin at Rainmaker did a lot of those, uh, yeah, a Bruce lot of those, and he just paint it by hand. I always yeah, you know, thought, why yeah. not have just a, a laser? Yeah, we tried one, that. And we it tried that. It wasn't as good? Um, it's tough to get the mat out of that. Like, basically, what you're doing is you're creating a mat element that ripples across the body surface. Yeah. And for sure, this laser that goes across could give you a guideline of how the shape of the water goes frame by frame. But people like Brad and and the compositors working under him, oh, not Brad, sorry, Bruce, all of the Stargates for the most part were done at Rainmaker and Bruce mm-hmm. was in charge of, over at Rainmaker of that stuff. Uh, they just got so good at like mm-hmm. how we can pick that up in two hours. There's no point in us spending an hour on set with some complicated laser rigs uh, set up when they can just, just do paint a paint it out. And dealing with clothing and and different elements that go along with the person going through. He's, Bruce said, you know, it used to take days and by, you know, Atlantis, it was taking them hours to do. Yes, exactly right. But yeah, it's still, according to Brad, costs $5,000 for each puddle pass. <laughs> He's like, why is this always the same <laughs> price? Did Brad actually say the price? That's hilarious. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's totally right. I don't, I'm not, you know, I think Brad might uh, be overestimating that. I think by the end, the uh, the cost of a pass-through um, came down quite a bit. Oh, okay. I want to say I was budgeting 1800 per for one of those, but I could be wrong. Per... Uh, Per shot or per every time someone went through? Like if there were a bunch of people in a shot. Yeah, we would probably mark that up a little bit more. I would say maybe, (laughs) I don't know, here I am, Mr. Budget, producer guy right now. Uh, Oh, that's funny. John Lennox. My gut gut is going to 2,500. Like I feel like I was writing that down in the budgets, but Brad will be like, what are you crazy? Every time it's $5,000. The $5,000 is like every matte painting was always $5,000. Wow. It's funny. Like all of this stuff is so arbitrary and you stick a number. It's even like that today. Like I budget today and who knows what it's going to be. Like it's, you're just creating a bucket that then allows you the room to try and do something good that makes everybody go, Oh, that's exciting. Like I, I, we haven't done that before or that I'm really happy with how that looks. And, and then everybody's happy because, you know, people who did it got paid properly and the people who bought the effect feel happy with the effect. They and got. I'm sure there were instances where, you know, you you guys had things created and they came back to you and said, this is not working as we intended. We're going to have oh, yeah. to spend more time on this if you want to get it right. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like I say, Matter of Time was a hard, hard episode. That was a, I definitely lost some years of my life on that one. Oh, um, gosh. I'm trying to think of others. The early years were the toughest because we were really trying to figure stuff out then. And I was trying to figure stuff out. I was like young. I was in my early 20s or mid 20s. And I was doing this job that uh, I was kind of learning on the go mm-hmm. because Brad had so much confidence in me, which was incredible that he did. Um, so I was like 
reading my Cinefix magazines every night and like, well, how are they doing it on the movies? How can we adapt that to the TV shows? We didn't have YouTube. There's none of this. Like there was no, nowadays the reference is just enormous. It's just right. an insane amount of reference that you can look at almost anything and just take it and match it. Like just, we got to do that. And you have all of the control with uh, CG stuff, which, you know, for better or worse, it makes this process a lot, maybe not a lot simpler, but simpler because you have reference and you have control. Whereas what we were doing was no reference or mind reference. And then you're trying to do it based out of like shooting elements. Like let's shoot some burning steel wool and take that in yeah. the closet and use that as a mat to reveal this. And if we put a glow on that and how's that look? And then you would bring it in and they'd be like, Ooh, I don't know. That looks a little weird. What if we take the glow off and, do more of the burning steel wool or how about we put some sparks on there and it's all it was just it's very collaborative and very um explorative and uh you know just a kind of a different world like we were kind of just figuring it out as we were going which made it wonderful it was wonderful i can't imagine your stress management i mean because you had you had deadlines um and you know you had to figure you had to figure stuff out in a finite amount of time and at a certain point, it's like, okay, now it's got to, yep. got to go to, to post-production or. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to say none of that has changed. Like it's still hard. Um, we're still, you still have to solve problems and find looks and, you know, having it all BCG or majority CG does not make things any simpler. Yeah. Um, many people are working on movies today that are not properly, um, big 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 movies that don't have enough time to finish and they are doing first version shots and they're showing up in the movie theater a week later kind of thing so that part of it hasn't changed it's still a very stressful job at points but um i think it was i think what i miss about that time is just the practical nature like it was not all digital there was a lot of analog there was a lot of um magic involved mm -hmm. like it's genuinely kind of an alchemic magic of viz effects that i don't think you have like what people can do with ai and and cg now like all of that stuff has its own magic that's quite incredible but there's something in the like taking film footage and massaging this into in this new nascent digital process but not really knowing what's the right way to do it. So let's just try this or let's try that or, and everybody being into it, like Brad and Robert were the biggest effects fans, right? Like they were so into excited. Like I always felt kind of special because they're constantly bu bugged. They're always, you know, they were always super nice to everybody, like always very welcoming, really good people um, to work for. But when you bring in a tape and you're going to like, let me show you some effects. Like you could genuinely see the excitement in their face. Cause they're just like, Oh, cool. Like kids. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And that, that was super fun to be able to, to kind of be the, the communicator of that. That's like one of the best parts of that job. What's some of your favorite, favorite magic from, from that shoot? <laughs> um, I really love doing models. Like uh, we did one, I'm never going to be able to tell you the name of the episode. It was a, a glider thing. Remember the glider is kind of like a triangle spaceship. The cargo ship going through the trees. Cargo ship. Yeah. yeah cargo that's ship uh, last stand season five. Last, there you go. Like I was really proud of that because we, again, we figured it out. Like the best way to do this is not to try and mimic it in CG. Let's just 
take a black box version or a green screen box version, actually it would have been a blue screen box version of this spaceship. Let's build it to size. So whatever it would have been, say, I want to say fifth scale maybe. And then we build a whole bunch of trees that we put in these little posts. And then we just blew this thing through those trees. We did it over and over and shot at this angle, shot at that angle, shot at another angle, and then took it to uh, GVFX. They did the, Doug Campbell actually did the work. He actually won an Emmy for uh, Game of Thrones too. Um, and he was a compositor that did that work and then putting those shots together and seeing just like put the CG version on top of the blue box. And now this CG spaceship's blowing through real trees and getting all the real dynamics, like that perfect blend of CG and, and, and real was for me totally magical because it just, it kind of like suddenly had a life that, um, that a lot of times if you go all CG or if you went all even models, maybe just wasn't there. Right. So like those worked really well. And then the replicators. And, oh, um, image engine, right? Yeah. Yeah. Image engine, but image engine in a different time, like image engine now is a huge studio, super successful. Um, what they did with Neil Blomkamp, who actually was one of our, our Stargate effects guys for a couple of years. Uh, when Neil they worked on, on Stargate, yeah, Neil was I didn't like, know that. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, yeah District really Nine, on. the prawns or something, and every time we, yeah. you know, we would, I would reference it, it's like those guys did the replicators. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was a different time, right? Like, Rear Image Engine was a much smaller company. Um, they uh, it was only five or six people. There was a guy there, Craig Craig Van and Bigler, who was kind of like one of my great collaborators, him and Doug Campbell and Bruce Woloshin and Christine Petroff. Like these were the kind of the main senior artists that I got to work with Robin Hackle, who was also one of the owners of image engine. And they were always like my first point of contact. When I get a script, it would be like, okay, this week we have to do this. How are we going to do this? And then we would all sort of sit down and strategize this together. Actually, I'm having an interesting memory um not stargate but a few years later we did i did one of the twilight movies and robin hackle was put on that because he they were one of the uh, vendors for the i want to say the running really fast and then also some of the wolves and i just Mm -hmm. remember sitting with him when we were trying to work out how to do the running really fast for the woods together and that's just like doing this like what if we tried this what if we do that and there's like oh that's that's the core of awesome effects is you're working with these people who are your friends and you're all you kind of everybody's got their strengths and my strength was set and then his strength was computer uh compositing with a nuke and stuff and then to be able to like and craig's strength was cg and lighting and to be able to like each kind of say this would be the best way for us to do that um you just end up with like the best product so i'd say that's magic and then i've always there's this one shot where um Again, I'll never be able to quote the episode, but uh, Amanda is goes outside of her house and uh, she reaches down and picks up a newspaper and then stands back up and the like in the background. Was not, yeah, yeah, that's right. And then she stands up and suddenly that dude's just standing right there and is like, how the hell did you get there so quickly? And I just loved the magic of that, of like figuring out, okay, if we just do this magic trick here. Um, we can make this work and it'll be a great reveal. Like, it'll just be like, whoa, like everyone will be all shocked. And I felt like that worked really well. Oh, and also another one would be Rick when he was fighting himself. Um, 
Bruce and I figured out how to basically do kind of early face replacement. It's no big deal nowadays. Like anybody, it's being done constantly. But back then it was just a like, oh, the, the amount of time we spent shooting to get it totally right. So we shoot him in one pass. And then he was doing it with Dan Shea. Right. And then, and then we'd flop them. And then he would like do that arm wrestle thing or with Dan Shea under his arm. So you get Rick, you basically just needed Rick on screen in both performances at the same time, seeing the, them looking towards camera at the same time. And that Bruce, you know, spent weeks finessing that to make it perfect. And it just looked great. It, it so looks cool. great. Yeah. Doppelganger. Yeah. You have to have, yeah. you have to have the, at least some sequence like that, especially because maybe it's Jack yeah. for crying out loud. So yeah, <laughs> Michael Shanks directed that episode. He did. So. That's right. That's right. I have a picture of me and uh, Rick, like looking at the splitter monitor and I'm talking him through how we're doing this. And I always love that. He's such a good guy. He's such a nice man. For an episode like Ascension, where you had Sean Patrick Flannery as Orlin and the camera goes down and it comes back up. I just always assumed that that shot, he was painted out of. Yeah and just yeah. composited over from a shot where he wasn't there and he just locked uh, the camera he off. was always there so she came oh. out and he was always there always there always there till down and revealed and he's still there but we just painted him out from before so you basically remove him from the head of the shot and then he can just stand there the whole time it's super simple and it took nothing to do but it was uh and anytime you do those sort of barroom switchy kind of like the camera is looking and then it goes here and it comes back and something's changed like all of that is fun. Like that playing with the edges of the frame always for me feels magic-y. That's what magic magicians do. A lot of it too, you know, you, you also have to spend money on things that, that don't appear on camera. I had a conversation with Bruce once about rig removal where there are cables and <laughs> shots and he would have to digitally erase them. He would say yeah. that that's hard. And if hard. you do it right, you will never know that anyone touched it. Totally. Yeah, and just takes forever, especially if you got rigs that are across people's faces or wires that go or overbought. Like that was another part of matter of time is we shot them all hanging on wires with a camera kind of looking up or looking down, and then you take it and you comp it into a regular angle. So then basically your gravity is shifted to the to the right side of frame, say. But what was hard in there is all what they're hanging on wires. So you got to get rid of the wires. Like there, there's all these support wires and the wires will go over their leg. And it's not just a matter of painting it over out from over the leg. A lot of times the wire will kind of like, you know, will sort of pull the, pull the fabric mm -hmm. of the arm. And so you got to get rid of that effect. And it's a hard work. I actually, I, I'm not of i I'm not a capable CG artist myself. I have spent time on the machines but I was always a management person. Um, but I did at one point go to um, Atmosphere for, I don't know what it was, maybe four or five months and just sat and was a junior compositor. And I for I actually painted, what did I do? I painted something out, just a horrible rig removal for one of the Battlestar Galactica shots. And it was this wire that was like wrapped all around this actor. Oh, like, gosh. <laughs> like oh, I spent so much time on that so much respect for people that you know smart smart again just a lot of really smart people figuring out ways to do this stuff and patience a lot patience. of patience yeah. <laughs> the... now we have all these ais that just do it for us automatically <laughs> remove the wiring Gone. right like it's that simple i know the uh uh ascended beings the, the glowy aliens did you take right. a look at that clip that i sent you i did yeah did that bring yeah. any memories back 
That was Maternal Instinct, right? Maternal Instinct was the first one that we saw, and then we got yeah. we got Shifu. He came back for Absolute Power, uh, and then Orlin obviously was an ascended being. But I mean, like when Shifu's moving through the SGC. You have to mm-hmm. have that light source that was, I'm assuming it was painted out, and then you composited the creature on top of it. Yeah. And that yeah, whole totally. thing. And then the Stargate is active. Yeah. And what totally a mess. Remembering, uh, I'm remembering the plates of, uh, I don't know who it would have been, or Gaffer, Rick. I don't remember Rick's last name, unfortunately. But I can just see him or somebody, one of the electrics, walking through the shot with that lamp. And then uh, so that Rick gets you all the interactive light in the set. And then you paint him out. And then you stick the CG element of the kind of like weird, flowy, clothy being person, and you float that over top. I didn't love the animation on it. If I was to redo that shot, I would probably have um, maybe gotten rid of the ooh, a little too, <laughs> a little too up and down. I think. I mean, it would be so different now. The CG element we would we that was early days again CG where cloth dynamics was brand new. Think we would do something a lot more complicated and interesting with the kind of tools we have now and then when they got up to the top we would shoot the actor at the top there and then you basically reveal the actor through the uh the little floaty octopusy creature thing and then for sure yeah the the reflections of the gate in the window although a lot of that was practical we jim menard came up with this whole system where he projected and we gave him an element of our cg just to full screen watery element and then he got a digital projector and put a screen in the stargate and then projected the stargate onto that screen so that when we're looking in reflections it could all mm-hmm. be practical and they can save some money that way yeah i, I believe uh, i think he's a season three or season four when you're looking at the control room through the the gate room and you can see the reflection it's not the it's not the 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 stargate that we know but it's it's close i always assumed yeah. it was just um some kind of a rear screen projection yeah. with yeah, a glowy element on it. Yeah, that's what it was. Or sometimes it was mylars. Um, they use all those mylars to do their interactive light. But yeah, they they did a uh, projector. Projector. That's great. My favorite. I mean, that's, again, like you're just trying to figure out how to put all the uh, resource into the big shots and uh, these sort of throwaways that you need because without it, it's sort of like all that subtle reflections and things like that is what sells the, in the world. Like you buy the Stargate being there because it's, right. you've seen it in a shot, but you're seeing it in people's eyes or glasses or in reflections. Like that's what really sells that an effect is real. And by season so. eight, they were um, for a lot of the shots, they had a, a, a projector on the gate and were projecting an image of the CG puddle. I mean, the evolution of that as you go through the show is just something else to behold. Yeah. So, yeah, totally. totally. Uh, my two favorite shots in the show, I'm mm-hmm. uh, wondering if you can speak to either of them, were mm-hmm. of of Jonas getting himself out of basically a submerged uh, section of a Gould mothership through rings. That's one of my favorite shots of the show. And then he, he finds himself in a different section of the ship. And for a moment... The, the water is contained in the rings. And as the rings go away, oh, the yeah. water just explodes. Yeah. It so one. holds up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then... Yeah, that was um, the other uh, unspoken uh, great collaborator here and rest in peace is Ray Douglas. Mm-hmm. He was an awesome, awesome part of all of this. Like you had asked about the explosions from the plasma blasts. Yeah. 
like all of that is on set and uh, i haven't done that kind of fun explosion stuff since that show like we would go out to stokes pit out in surrey and he would wire the whole place up there'd be like explosions as far as the eye could see so the death glider just... shots everyone yeah, the Death Flyers, that's it. And he uh, he and his team would just do some of the great big explosions that sold those effects so well. Like without, there was another shot, I wasn't involved in this one, this was Michelle Cummins did this, but, um, or her and her team. Uh, there was a, I don't know, <laughs> made a gold, but it's not like the, um, it's, it was some big shot where it like crashes on the Stargate and then there's just a mammoth explosion as the Stargate itself is blown up. Yeah, 48 hours. Tanith, the, uh, the, yeah. his big it's ship like, goes into the DHD and then the Stargate it, snaps it. in half, which we've never seen that before. So that must be like season seven or something. Cause I think season I five. Have... Oh, season five. Really? 48 hours. Huh. Season five. Huh. Well, there you go. Anyway. Um, I always thought that one was awesome. And what made that one really awesome was the explosions they had on set. And I know Craig, who did that shot, because Image Engine was doing that model or that uh, vehicle. Um, he also enhanced it with a lot of explosion effects to try and get the ship itself blowing up. But uh, again, there you go. Like the, the, the interaction between the practical and then the CG is always, always, always going to be better than just CG by itself. It's always going to just sell it because you just get so much out of your plate when actual things are exploding or actual things are reflecting or actual light is moving, whatever those things are, that that always sells effects. It's hard because if you don't shoot it well or you make a mistake in how you shoot your your interactive elements, then suddenly the uh, VFX artists have to do a ton of reconstruction work. So for as every successful thing that I shot for people, I shot some pretty bad plates too, that they unfortunately had to go in and fix a ton of stuff in as well. But um, when you get it right, it's gold. Right. So, I was told um, the explosion. But, that, but I was, let me finish on yeah, that. Please. Is, is your, so your ring shot with the water is exactly that. The rings are CG. And then uh, we would have had, I would, I'm not totally sure. I can't remember what we did. Probably a, uh, tank dump from above from top of frame out of frame and then you would like not see it pouring in from top right. of frame but you would reveal it in as it all splooshed under the ground so same deal there like using real water on the set and then controlling when to reveal it in uh in cg is uh would just make that work madness perfect. and just knowing just hitting your marks you know and then painting in it. went and, and out and hard because you flood the set you're done like there's right. no second takes you've just poured water all over the set so now what if it didn't go well or wasn't done right like the pressure always in those situations was on ray and his team of like get it right and by far one of the best uh effects teams i've ever worked with i've worked with a lot of different effects people and those guys were just awesome with the thing and ray was always so into it like just let's do let's do this or i can give you that or what if we did this part and so great did you do you recall blowing up the the Abydos pyramid? Yeah. So again, same deal, right? Like uh, we hired a local model maker here. I don't remember his name, but he was a really talented model maker. We built a, I don't know, twelfth scale model, maybe maybe even bigger than that. It was probably like twenty feet high. We took it out to Stokes Pit. Uh, Ray wired it all up, 
and blew it up. And in a lot of ways, there really isn't a lot of VFX in that. That was mostly like force perspective. We added, I think, these little doors and some pillars falling down in the foreground. And I think Matt painted in dunes because we didn't really have anywhere that had dunes. Um, and then maybe replace a sky to give some scale. Stuff like that is the trick with that that is kind of a lost art is shooting models to scale. You have to shoot using film really helped a lot because you can use different speeds of film. Um, we'll create a sense, we'll slow the explosion down, which creates the sense of it being a lot bigger than it is. Mm. Um, that was the same deal with the going through the trees. We would shoot that at like a high speed, 96 frames per second or 120 frames per second. There's like a formula that you would use based on your scale that uh, I've completely forgotten, but I used to be able to do in my head. Um, and so the same with that, with the, with the pyramid exploding. And then Ray, I think, tiered it so it was like bah, 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 bah. yes so it went yeah. off because it was being shot down from above that's so right it, it exploded yeah, yeah, outward yeah, yeah. so it exploded from the bottom up kind of thing just great like Crazy. all that stuff was great and then you know like say with the replicator same deal if we were in the sub for that yes. first episode in the season something five season four like, oh, yeah well, that season four hey? small victories it's all blurring together. Yeah. And then the previous season, season three, would we, we ended with the replicators there. Mm -hmm. That all worked because we had so much of the gunfire, which, you know, like is very contentious right now, whether we want to be shooting guns on set anymore. Mm -hmm. Understandably, not something that's uh, exciting for people to have to deal with. 100% mm -hmm. not exciting. But it also, but when you do it for real, it just, there's something you can't act in that, right? Like the recoil of guns and the flashes, the muzzle flashes of the guns, they light up the whole set and all of that, putting a bunch of CG into that just suddenly works just so much better. And there's the overwhelming nature of the replicators in that last moment. It's a great sequence in Nemesis at the end of that episode. It's so oh, good. Yeah. It's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. That was fun to do. What a crazy little creature that was. I actually saw a uh, AI or no, a robot creature that looked almost exactly like the replicator now. That somebody had made yeah there they are yeah that looks like where do you get that the fan made him oh that's cool well, they did a really good job that looks amazing so yeah. i never thought i would own one and you know, <laughs> the, the 3d printing that's just it's advances oh, yeah, in technology printing. yeah yeah you know right. and <laughs> and that you have you know the people with with the right amount of uh of skill so yeah, it's just done. crazy. This is the version that was introduced in season five, the the premiere. Right. You, you was guys it built uh, a second? Was that full three D printed, um, like as one go, or was he did he 3D print all the pieces and then put it together? By I hand? think that in this context, it was it. I don't know. <laughs> if you'd like, I'll put you in touch with him to see how he did. <laughs> so he's brilliant. He's absolutely brilliant. That's three um, D Tech Pro. Right. Um, they're on Etsy. I have some fan questions for you. All right. So you had uh, season. Are you good for another ten minutes? Yeah, I got lots. I my, my other commitment fell out, so I can. Oh, it's, okay. Okay, understood, sir. I didn't want to yeah. rush you out. Um, cool. So you did Atlanta season two uh, as mm -hmm. well. We haven't we haven't mentioned that at all. Was that like mm -hmm. were you asked to come back into the show? Was there like something else because because you left and then you returned? Yeah. So. That was an interesting time in my life. I uh, I was on up until what was my last season of Stargate? <laughs> you said season six, but was my records right? say season seven. But you said you didn't oh, do the really? Super Soldier, so mm -hmm. that makes that means season six. Okay. So the wiki could be wrong. 
What was the what was the, the episode where it's over the ice planet and there's this huge ice battle, spaceships flying in all that's directions? That's Antarctica. That's Earth. Yeah, and, and that was uh, the end of season mm-hmm. seven. That was the end of season seven. Mm-hmm. So it was in season seven. Jesus, yeah, Murphy. yeah. Bruce okay. did the red, the lava planet, Proclusteanos, and then yeah. I, I don't know who it was that did that flew over Antarctica, but it wasn't that was him. All in it was in engine. engine. Yeah. Okay. All right. So cool. So at the same time that we were doing that, I got hired uh, to do a Stephen King miniseries called Kingdom Hospital. Yep. And I would never have left Stargate except for the fact that Stephen King was like James Titchener at age 11's greatest favorite writer of all time. And this show was so insane. I was like, I, I can't leave Stargate. I've been here for too long. I just can't abandon them. But then they sent me the scripts and it was these scripts, the 12 episodes that Steve wrote. And uh, it was based on the the kingdom by Lars von Trier. And it was just insane. Like these pages were insane. The, mm. All the effects in that were so weird and horror movie and it was so different from what I was doing on Stargate. And it was Stephen King. And I think the producer was somebody I knew. And it was big. And I really, I just, I was like, oh, I've got to do this. Like, I have to do this. So I went to Brad. And I'm like, Brad, if this thing has come up, I, I, I really feel like I have to go and do this show. It's just, it's, this is like young James's dream to work on a Stephen King thing. This was like all the reasons why I want to be a writer was Stephen King books that I read as a kid. And he was awesome. Like he was just like, you should go do it. This is something that you want to do. So I support you. And what we did is I did both. So I finished season seven and then I started shooting uh, Kingdom Hospital, which was like, I think it was 13 episodes, block shot, super complicated, like a whole different deal. Very, uh, I want to say difficult because the people there were cool in their own ways, but very different expectations. It was like, back to season one on Stargate where you're working things out, you're working out how to work together. Expectations were very high. Um, it was a tough show. Like that was a hard show. I spent a lot of time on sets and, uh, and asleep on floors in studios and kind of dealing with managing expectations, which were very, very high and um, trying to manage process, which was not established. So things were, you know, people were working ridiculously long hours and it really was probably the hardest visit show that had come to Vancouver up to that point. Um, a lot of people <laughs> did not have a good time on that show. So, but there was a, just an incredible amount of different effects. So I went off to do that. I finished uh, the season seven Stargate at the same time that I was doing Kingdom Hospital. And once I finished Kingdom Hospital, season eight had already started. And I think, I think, um, I want to say season eight and season one of Atlantis. Correct. Okay. So I just wasn't available to do. And John Gadecki came back, I think, to do season one. And then Mark Brakespear, who was somebody at uh, Image Engine, he was, or no, at uh, Rainmaker, he worked alongside um, Bruce Walsh. And Mark was hired to be uh, the main series uh, supervisor while John did the pilot. So, you know, cut ahead uh, another year. I had moved to England for a while and then um, was coming back to Vancouver and Brad uh, reached out and was like, um, I would love to have you come back. Like, I think 
there was what we what they wanted to do was figure out a way to have more uh, in-house control mm-hmm. over the effects and that was the season that we used um to build this in-house department where i, I see. was able to get the atlantis model kind of back into studio and we 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 bought a bunch of servers like it wasn't not a trivial thing um it's still hard to set up a studio but it was tricky to set up an in-house that was actually capable of doing significant work and so i actually spent a lot of time on that season running helping to set that up and running that and managing the in-house department and less so on set i I hired a friend of mine john mcpherson to come uh shoot the set for that so i don't have a lot of memories of atlantis oddly enough um because i was so involved kind of in the product producing portion um i think that guy, the Aquaman, was in it, though, right? <laughs> That's- oh, yes. Aquaman was definitely in it, for sure. <laughs> That's- it shows you how disconnected I was. So, And then I, I left after that. Once we got the in-house department set up, I think, um, and I feel kind of bad about that because I left Brad, and I think Brad was a little upset that I left after only one season. Um, but I know he was happy that we got the in-house set up. Mm. And I just felt like at that point, maybe my time with Stargate had come to an end. Oh, the other big thing that we did was um, we brought in Mark Savella and, yes. uh, and worked all that season to kind of establish him as the, as the new Stargate guy. Yep. And Mark had been again, another long friend. He had been involved in Stargate since season one as a coordinator with GVFX in Toronto. Um, so, you know, and in the meantime, over the seven seasons, he had become a supervisor in his own right. So, that so setting up the in-house and setting up Mark to succeed, I think, was my main focus during that season. And then Mark went on to do all everything after that and was a huge part of that team. So I feel like in the end it worked out fine. It was just it was that was a tough. I don't love leaving shows. That was the only mm. show I think I've ever left. Um, um, but I got to do a commentary with Stephen King for the pilot of Kingdom Hospital, which was amazing <laughs> to get you- to sit with him. You have to, you know, you have to take care of you. And if if a childhood dream manifests itself, you never forgive yourself if you didn't pursue it. it. Yeah, totally right. I'm very proud of that show, even though I think it was the worst rated show on TV in the last, like, nobody has ever watched that show. Nobody ever talks about that show when they talk about Stephen King adaptations. But for me, it was just, we did this anteater creature at Image Engine that I think that, that proved to Neil that Image Engine was capable of doing serious creatures. And I think that's what got them District 9, honestly. Wow. And Neil worked, was he working on Kingdom? I know he had done, I had done some shots with him on Stargate sort of towards the end. And he was, um, he was kind of this boutique artist who would just do everything. So I would bring him a shot and he would just be like, okay, he'll take care of it all. He modeled it all. He did all the camera. He did all the action, did all the compositing, he did all the lighting. Like everything was a Neil. It was like a Neil shot. So uh, I don't think he ended up doing anything when he was at the end because he was a co-owner in a company called the embassy here. Um, And I remember him like maybe prepping D9, maybe, Hmm, maybe not. I don't know. That all sort of overlaps. But anyway, he did a short called Alive in Joburg. That's right. Yeah, that's um, right. That's I loved. Good. And when District yeah. 9 came out, I was like, okay, someone's going to be getting uh, lawsuit papers. And then I found, oh, it's him. <laughs> it's the same guy. <laughs> it's the same yeah. guy. 
Yeah, uh, he did also, he did a Nike commercial right in between there that ended up never airing because I guess the message of the commercial that Nike decided wasn't right, but it's message. a cool, cool commercial. Like, uh, it's a factory that generates, a uh, Nike factory that generates athletes. And uh, it was a cool, wow. cool scene. Like, Neil is just such a visionary. And yeah. It was great. Like, he came in when he, I think he must have been 18 maybe when he did his first Stargate shots. And he came in kind of like as this little kid into into Rainmaker, and they all sort of adopted him, and and then it was clear almost immediately how uh, he's how, brilliant. He's yeah, brilliant. incredible. He has with cameras and and filmmaking. Have yeah. you seen Raka with Sigourney Weaver? I don't know. It's don't it's so. it's a 2017 short because Sigourney oh, and him was supposed that, to do yeah. another Alien yeah. together. It's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. so well it's really done. Cool. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, it's cool. It's neat that he stayed in Vancouver, too. So there's a lot mm-hmm. of people in Vancouver that work with him. Absolutely. Uh, Jeremy Heiner, uh, do you remember uh, any... Uh, now, we're going to... If you don't remember in, uh, any of these elements, just let me know and we'll move on. But I do have some fan questions about, about a few specifics. Uh, okay. The introduction of the Daedalus was at the beginning of Season 2. Um, okay. That's that's this model right here. Um do you uh, recall uh, anything about uh, the Daedalus from that season? The Siege Part Three, when that ship comes to the rescue of Atlantis, um, the Wraith is the Wraith is uh, bombarding uh, Atlantis from space. There's darts. There's there's madness. Do you remember anything from that episode? Is this which series is this? This is Atlantis for season the beginning of season two. It's all good. Uncomfortable silence. I don't okay. know what it is about that series that I did not. I think I'm pretty sure it's because I was so involved in in management stuff. Okay. It just wasn't as involved in shots. Okay. Oddly enough. I know I, I mean, I did them. I supervised them and we took them through post. But for some reason, I just don't remember it the same way that I remember the Stargate stuff. I think part of it too is it was a lot of CG stuff and CG is you shoot a plate and you send it to the vendor and the vendor sends back shots. There's way less like we have to shoot this and this and this and this mm. and this has to come together. And and so you're way more involved with CG stuff. You're not near as involved as a supervisor. So it becomes much more of a managerial task. I see. So, I, yeah, I'm sorry. I don't remember the Daedalus at all. It's all good. <laughs> hey, you showed me a shot. I might remember. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> this um... is a long time ago. Raj uh, Luthra, what were some of the visual effects that you found were the easiest to pull off that looked like more complex that that would that would probably be more complex, but like behind the scenes, it's actually you know this is really rudimentary. Was there anything like that? Um, hmm, not hard to do, but look like they are would be really complicated. I, nothing's coming to mind okay. right now. There's so many. And uh, again, that would be one of those ones where you'd sit and you would show me an episode or you'd show me a, like a reel of Got shots it. and be like, how'd you do that? And be like, oh, that one's easy. You just do this, this, and this. I think anything that's like split screens, um, twinning, stuff like that, seems like it might be really complicated. But if it's shot well, and it is, it can be very complicated when you're shooting. But when you put it together, as long as it's shot well, it goes together like in no time at all. So, and timing, making sure that the actors hit their yeah. marks. And... Yes, yes, and that the eye lines are right. Like all of that stuff 
is complicated to shoot, but super easy to do as long as you do it right. If you don't do it right, then suddenly you're into a whole world of pain of like changing people's heads and eyes and moving stuff around that doesn't want to be moved around. So lock watcher, um, some of your favorite locations over the years to shoot with. What is lock watcher? What do you, what do you mean when you say that? Lock watcher is his alias. Who, so, oh, these are we're getting questions, fan questions. questions. Oh, okay. Now I'm understanding. I'm like, sorry, James. I'm giving cool. I'm giving the the yes, the, the uh, viewer credit oh. for asking yeah, the question. I, I'm too old for this stuff. I don't get how it works. Um, ask me the question again. Lock Watcher asks, yes. uh, what would be uh, some of your favorite locations over over the years to shoot at?" Oh yeah. Okay. So. Um, uh, working up in the what we call the GVRD, which is um, North Vancouver, uh, out past the Capilano College. It's a little trickier now to get in. We used to be able to drive in there, but there's just some incredible views out there that we shot a ton of different things. And like, I get for me, I can never remember what episodes there, but I remember one episode with a bunch of UNAS in a row, and they all kind of stepped forward. We did CG UNAS, we did all motion capture, like years before they were doing mocap on uh, Lord of the Rings. And then this, like, we shot a guy in the foreground with a cool-ass uh, Todd Masters makeup effects on it. So that that view, and then there was, like, a, sh- a view of this, like, city over kind of a beautiful cliff with mountains, and the city kind of ripples in. I think it must have been the Knox. Yeah. Yeah, that was all shot out there, and just an awesome part of the city. I go hiking up there all the time. I ride my bike up there. So it's, that's a, beautiful. it's a beautiful area. The great is greater Vancouver regional district. Is that what, what that? Yeah. I mean, all of that, that yes, but that is, okay. that describes like all of Vancouver for whatever reason <laughs> okay. in the, in the film business, the GVRD was always the Seymour demonstration forest. And, and that's what it's called. That's what the actual name. I think um, there was one episode season one maybe episode three or four where we were in the uh Bloedel conservatory so yes. it was like this yes. cool and so shooting there was really muggy and hot and then they had these chairs that they sat in and these little tentacles came out and wrapped around them <laughs> that was funny lost boys did that stuff that was really fun doing those shots it was actually worse like that was some of the first cg we did that actually worked starting to work really well um yeah, I, I think those would be the ones, and maybe like Stokes Pit, we was not the most glamorous place to shoot, but we were out there a lot. That was always, whenever you're in Stokes Pit, you're going to blow something up. So that was. <laughs> I think that's where I shot the night sequence that I the one little second unit that they let me direct, of uh, kind of a chase through the woods. So and, you shot the opening of um, of Abyss, which is. They're they're running to the Stargate. That was your sequence, right? That's right. Can yeah. you tell us yeah. about that? Yeah. So I wasn't meant to direct that, and I had never really had much ambition to be a director. I was wanted to write, um, but they ran into a problem where Martin. I feel like his mom might have gotten really sick or passed away, unfortunately, and he had to leave oh on the moment's notice. And Andy Makita, who's the other kind of or no, it was Peter and Andy, but they were both wrapped up in other things. And yeah. we had this night unit. And uh, so they asked me, is this something you'd want to do? And at the time I was like, sure, that sounds like fun. So we went out and all all I had, I didn't even have access to talk to Martin about how he wanted it shot. All I had was a, a video that he had shot on the, on the scout. 
of like, I think that's a shot that he wants to do. And I think that's a shot. I kind of get, like we'd worked together so much that I kind of understood what he was trying to go for. Mm-hmm. And so I just went out there and I was like, okay, well, we'll just like do some, because the other hard part with that is um, the reveal of O'Neill was like held back for some reason. I don't remember. I think we were. It's a, you're hearing a, a Tokra voice. And so it's a right. shock that it's coming out of O'Neill at the end. That's right. That's right. That's right. So all of it was shot kind of from his point of view when he's running. And we had uh, Tim Spencer on Steadicam kind of going crazy out there. That guy always had so much energy, like four in the morning, just running around like a maniac. Um, and and then, yeah, so we just I just kind of like, as best I could, piece this together while not revealing the actor or not revealing that it's Rick. Um, and they kind of got a little awkward, I think, at a point towards the end of that sequence where the chase was all good. But then the the way the reveal happened, I think I messed that up, I think, <laughs> as best. I, that's the best way I can put it, because I remember Brad kind of getting in the editing room and sort of reworking everything to make it work a little better. And then they never asked me to direct again. So (laughs) (laughs) it didn't go as well as they were hoping or something. So that's fine. I I, work in the show. So yeah, it it turned out okay. I think it was fine. There you go. There's something I did something completely wrong. It was like maybe shooting the shooting the thing, the The dialer, the dialer. Maybe I did that wrong. I don't remember. I, I screwed up somehow, but. You were asked to, to you know, pinch hit on, on short notice. Yeah, totally. So. Nobody held it against me. It was fine. They just were like, okay, noted. Don't give that guy stuff to direct. Mac Boland's conscious writes, can Good computer man. vision or machine learning be used to truly improve the quality of shots? What are your thoughts on that? Right. Machine learning. Uh-huh. Um I don't know about the computer vision portion, but machine learning is coming and we are going to use it. It will be used in a lot of repetitive tasks like rotoscoping, camera tracking, all of the kind of meat and potatoes, um, not creatively driven work mm. for sure. Like that's there and that's going to happen. Um I think there will come a t- day too where we will describe our shots to the computer and it will generate elements i'm i'm actually talking to a friend right now about a show that he's shooting he actually starts shooting on tuesday and we're talking to some pretty cool edgy um uh what would they be called uh well he's a stable diffusion artist i want to call him that and he set up he's kind of come up with a really innovative way of using stable diffusion to create to generate content and then uh, another one, we're sort of looking at using uh, deep fakes to do some face replacements, sort mm-hmm. of a, on the sly kind of. Uh, and so these are tools being used on a very low budget independent movie. So I see that kind of stuff happening more. Mm-hmm. I think, um, say the uh, the that Martin Scorsese, The Irishman, probably would yep. have succeeded better if it was used more of that technology and less of the more traditional CG technology. Easy for me to say sure at the time i think there's a resolution issue with using that so probably not doable um the problem with all of this is it's uh, an uncontrolled resource right like which is cool on one hand because in the old days it was uncontrolled resources of shooting water shooting fire shooting explosions shooting burning steel wool like all of that stuff of like i don't know how this is going to turn out um and that's that, nature that there's yeah. this hardware has been created by someone 
Yeah, but it's also uh, natural in itself. Like you, there's no, there's no way to kind of take what the machine has learned to generate and, oh, give me just five percent more of this or two percent. Right. Like it just does what it does. At this point, there's no way to tune the 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 brain of these of this creative entity or whatever. But um, I and then the other part of it is I don't think the art of it is that fantastic i think some of it looks kind of neat but it all has a very uniform vibe to it right like in my mind stable diffusion and uh uh the other ones wally open wally whatever it's called not wally dolly Dolly, um i sort of think of them as like uh web searches for images that don't yet exist yeah (laughs) right that's right yeah yeah, they're kind of coming up with these pictures that you know, they are, you ask for it and you get something that sort of is like what you asked for. And sometimes it looks kind of neat, but I think um, in my mind, it'll never, it's just, we, our aesthetic bar is going to have to lower itself until we accept that as being equal to what a great artist will do. It's like watching it. uh, We, we have an artist, Adam Gayhill, who does, uh, who's usually using Dolly and stable diffusion to create Stargate episode images for each episode Mm -hmm. as we go through it on our commentary channel. And for some reason it loves to make fingers. Like, I don't know what it is, but like six or seven fingers, you know, little things that keep on creeping into every image. And I really think it's a question of time. You know, I think it is a lot of those. Yeah. I don't know what's to solve, though. I'm not totally sure that it is uh, necessary. But, you know, having said that, Wizard, this guy, Wizardhead, if anybody wants to see some of the coolest uh, machine learning image generation stuff this guy wizardhead is working on youtube and he's the guy that we've been talking to about doing okay. some stuff for this movie and he's doing crazy stuff and he's it's crazy because he's trained stable diffusion on a very specific set of images to create and then paired it with a very specific set of um uh, source material and it creates this very dissonant um uncomfortable experience that is only that way because a human wow. being decided to build it that way right it's not just like type in my prompt and get a picture and then we're good to go like he's using the tools in a creative way um and and it understands the tools to be able to do those things with it uh and that and then he does things with sound that's similar and just there is somebody there that's really thinking about what they're using so i, th- I see the future in that world but that is also uh, a smart human being you hit, controlling the situation, not just relying on the machine to tell to give us the. the material. That's it, exactly. You, you, the human being prompted it with novelty. Yes, exactly. The computer doesn't generate novelty. The computer no. takes the idea and runs with it. Yeah, exactly. So. Exactly. But it's also it's always going to be. I, well, I should never. Nothing isn't always. At this point, it's mm-hmm. uh, it's kind of a uh, uncontrolled beast. It's like an untamed an untamed animal that just gives you what it's going to give you. And, and it may be cool and it may not. And there's weird areas that is just oddball and, and bizarre. And those are kind of interesting, but I would not love the idea of like um, replacing my compositors. Like I can see, say a texture artist using stable diffusion to create textures. Like that makes total sense to me, but I don't see us replacing our whole asset team with uh uh assets generated 
by machine learning at any point in the next well i don't know i want to say (laughs) (laughs) it's it's all up for grabs at this point. yeah i mean it is again it's just like i have not seen a single thing done in any inspiring way with music poetry words like none of that has no poem has been written so far that i've read that is as good as a poem that's written by a good poet and Mm -hmm. i don't and I can't imagine that would be any different for creating like incredible images, mm. but be interesting. Just... it'll be interesting to see. Yeah. yeah. There's, um, uh, D 99 and wacko. They asked, they asked questions that you kind of answered, uh, in with this, this discussion here. So I, I appreciate them adding and Gene Deata Smith just wanted to make a comment. Uh, uh, wanted to thank you for giving us such great effects, um and she says i know if i see your name in the comments it's gonna be good so (laughs) (laughs) that's nice pamela gasper wanted to know would you uh ever come back to stargate for to to do more content when uh when amazon and mgm through amazon finally get their their rear in gear if brad and robert were involved i would be there in a heartbeat i would love that i don't know whether i would be considered and my guess is that i would not be part of that slate i think that those studios would expect um like um, much more let's say high-end or high-credited uh uh, supervisors to do their work now i don't think i would be seen as as capable unfortunately which is fine i mean i think that that's just the gen that's just the genealogy of these things right like you you this the world kind of progresses and it just is what it is Well, as long as you're if not they wanted to shoot, if they wanted to shoot models if they wanted to come in and do it like old school stargate and have that old school stargate look then yes but mm. uh if they wanted super high end cg i don't know that stuff well enough and i don't i don't love that stuff well enough like i'm still an old school play the guitar with a like a real guitar but they want synth and uh edm kind of thing and that's totally cool i get it like that's the look of the world now but i don't understand that that well and i don't i don't have the passion for that and they'd want somebody who's passionate for that but if they want to like build models and run spaceships through trees and all that i'm their guy (laughs) and you won't be able to find a lot of guys like me anymore wow do you have a couple more minutes yep i want to wrap up by talking about the stories you contributed to um Mm -hmm. Menace, uh, which actually was filming during September 11th. It sure was. I remember that morning when we were shooting. What was? Uh, can you can you tell us that day? First of all, let's let's back up a little bit. Um, okay. you, you the the story itself. So right. where 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 uh, where did you? So the history there is uh, like I said before when I was working on that show, The Odyssey, Ryan Reynolds' first big show. Yes, CBC show. Um, Brad was one of the writers, so Brad and I always had the the pre Stargate connection of uh, having you know him being a writer and me being a story department person, and he knew uh, that I still wrote and I still cared about being a writer. And he that one season, I think you'll tell me season five season five near the end there you go. okay good you got it uh, i when i came in that season to negotiate my deal i said you know i don't need a raise but i would love an opportunity to pitch a story and he said you bet so uh as part of my deal of being a part of the family 
he would do this for like, you know, like um, um, Alan Lee, the, the editor was given an episode to direct and Michael Shanks given an episode to direct. Mm-hmm. So the people that were like all kind of creatively a part of this family of Stargate people were always given opportunities to do other things as a, mm-hmm. uh, Pete West directed a number of episodes. I think he directed that maternal instinct. Yeah, to grow. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. And and it just you know like it's easier to bring those people in in theory because they know the show so well, mm-hmm. and uh, there's a little bit more control than if you just bring some stranger in, right? And there's only so much that Martin or Peter Deloise or you know they can only direct so much before they start to burn out. So anyway. I pitched uh, the idea of uh, the the originator of the replicators being this young girl who um, was just playing with her robot toys, essentially. And she created this AI, kind of much like our machine learning, that went kind of bananas. And in my story, we, disco- we kind of find her amongst her toys, and then we discover that her whole family and kind of the last vestiges of her planet, the people of her planet, uh, the ones who've survived, live in these caves. And we're like, and they live in a place that like is zero tech, like the only place that the replicators could go because otherwise they, you know, maybe they run out of energy. We never developed this part of it. But my story had us finding this like really archaic um back to the landers uh people who had who had lo- had kind of come out the other side of this apocalypse this machine apocalypse because they um, won't eat that stuff right They'll exactly. stay away from them exactly is that was the only safe place for them and then i guess in my story they would have we would have helped uh unify her family with her again and kind of figure out how to like not have everybody get eaten by replicators but um, I think Brad liked the, the oh, that's cool that this young girl made toys that went bananas. Like this innocent person who has no idea of the power that she's unleashed, he liked. And then he took, I did an outline on that story. And then um, basically they took it over as they tend to do. And they're like, okay, well, we like this part. We like this part. We like this part, but we're going to run with it ourselves. So Robert Cooper actually... Uh, ended up breaking the story in the way that the story ended up. And I got a story credit out of it, which was wonderful. Um, and I, I thought that episode actually turned out really well. Um, but I wouldn't say that that was necessarily my story. And that's just the way the movie business works is like, you bring in a concept, you take it as far as you can as the writer, and then the showrunners are going to, are going to finish it off and they uh, will always love the person that can take it the furthest along because it's the least amount of work for them. Mm. But I think in that case, and even in the other episode that I actually wrote, I think it was decided in the end that kind of like my directing, maybe maybe I'm (laughs) good good with effects, but maybe not. I've never like I've written way before that and continue to write to this day. And I think the stuff I write is really good, but it's mine and it's very specific to the way I see things. And you, when you write for a TV show, you need um, somebody who can write in the voice of the producers. And I was well, never able to do that. Well, I mean, and, the, without a doubt, the germ of Menace is yours. You yes, know, that idea is sure. really that's cool. So, yeah, and the, I never the do the backstory there. of that. So that's great. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, Metamorphosis was a similar thing. I really wanted to do kind of a, because we had never really done it, but find um, somebody that was like a bad guy genetics geneticist. And I just had this image in my head of like some dude, like normal guy that had had wings crafted on him. We would do these really cool ass CG wings. 
And Brad, I still remember Brad's like, what are you crazy? You know how big those wings would have to be? That's, that's insane. But he liked the idea of uh, kind of the genetic manipulation gone bad sort of thing. So again, same deal. You bring the germ and then you work with them and then they, they kind of like the story's now gone this way and I'm like, cool. All right. And then you take a stab at writing the script and I'd say maybe 20% of the script that's uh, what ended up in the show ended up on the screen and then Brad rewrote the rest of it. And, and Jacqueline Samuda also had, um, she, she did she, yeah. this, with this, with this gene machine, you know, that's right. Like yeah. climbing yeah. a ladder of, of, uh, of a helix. Yeah, that's, that's it. So cool. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And that was an effect we did, right? Like, yep. didn't we create kind of a holographic uh-huh. kind of thing? The, there yeah. was no climbing, but I mean, it's yeah. it's a cool sequence. <laughs> so, yeah, for sure. That was, again, Brad's thing of like helping people who have been on the show for a while. And also like, oh, those two had a similar idea. Let's like you guys kind of, I'm going to take that part of their, of her idea and bring James's idea and we'll make this into this new thing. So, yeah. It was fun. It was great. I mean, the greatest thing, honestly, in that is that uh, to this day, I still get a residual check, which is uh, amazing. <laughs> there you go. Every time it's played, every, right? Every three months, I get this like, you know, a couple hundred bucks. I'm like, oh. Hey, that's great. Can, yeah. you, can you speak to um, uh, your episode in production during September 11th? What was that yeah, like? What so, was that day like? Yeah, it was wild. It was... Uh, um. I was getting up, so we were shooting my episode, so I was, and we were doing effects on it, so I was going to set for the effects, but I was also shooting something that I, you know, might not have written the script, but I was involved in the story, so I felt, it's like, I wrote an episode of The Odyssey years ago as well, like the second to last episode, I think, was one that I'd written, so I'd, I'd been produced in the past, but it was cool to do it on Stargate, which is a place, you know, it was a place I really liked being, and so I was driving to work and uh, heard this before internet. So I heard on the radio, they just like something's happened in New York city. And it was a little kind of like, Oh Jesus, what's going on. And then through the day they had had um, monitors on set that were showing the news. Mm. And uh, while you Martin, guys worked while we were working and, and there was a lot of like, we shouldn't be working. Like we should be going home. Like, this is insane. What's going on. Cause you know, at the, mo- in that moment, you don't know what is coming next uh, as everybody knows really well. Right. So you're just in this kind of like nether zone and uh, Martin Wood actually, I think at the time I was kind of like, I don't know about this, but in retrospect, I think he was absolutely right. He was just like, no way. Cause everyone's just going to go home and they're going to sit in front of their TVs and they're going to obsess on this. And they're, and let's just keep like, just, keep going like just keep going everything's going to be fine let's you know do our thing be respectful but um it doesn't make sense to kind of wallow in this and i think mm-hmm. he was right and i kind of didn't want to watch it right like so i stayed away from the monitors just focused on us shooting and i the biggest image i have of the day is looking back at our crew a bunch of them are all standing watching the tv and they're all their faces are just like, oh my god, as the towers actually fell, and uh, and yeah, they all like just that, that that moment of gasping is what sort of is burned into my head on that day. Wow. So yeah, wow. it was intense. You know, it's um, these are the moments that that define our our lives. The people that were with all of us who you know were were alive and cognizant, you know, at that point in time remember where we were and what happened and i appreciate you sharing that story 
Yeah, right. That's thank you so much. Yeah. And um, yeah, I, I think I think you guys eventually did shut down production, if I'm not I'm not mistaken. Um, did we? I th- I think so. At a certain at a certain point, I think you guys ca- maybe not- half a day short. I think so. Possibly. Yeah. I just, I just remember Martin being like, I think it's a bad idea, and I okay. That really stuck out to me as some of the wisest, a wise moment, definitely right. a wise moment, because it's easy to kind of get lost in this stuff, mm-hmm. and uh, and it's important to be respectful for sure, but it's also important not to um, kind of get consumed. There's a yeah. lot of dark stuff happens in the world, and we're lucky that we get to do this like goofy job of making entertainment, which mm-hmm. is totally cool. Um, There's also a certain amount of element of don't let the evil win. Yeah, know? exactly. Like that's so, exactly it. I mean, it doesn't. I don't think it wants to go to the extreme of like just go out shopping, which was what the right. dumb message sent at the time. But you also just can't become overwhelmed by uh, forces that are out of your control, right? Mm-hmm. And I think. I mean, it's stories are kind of written around that idea of like mm. perseverance and resilience and that kind of thing. And I wouldn't say that we were particularly resilient just to keep shooting, but uh, I think people generally are resilient in that you get through big moments and you kind of live through them. Right? The pandemic is a great example. I was do- I like literally wrapped a movie and then suddenly we were all into uh, quarantine and I'm like wow. posting a film during quarantine and. You know, that two or three months was like, what's happening? What's going to happen next? Wow. You just don't know, right? But you just have to keep uh, keep ahead on you. Keep yourself at even keel to a certain extent. Do the best you can. So, James, yeah. this has been so cool. I learned hey. so much new stuff. Um, <laughs> just going to be sitting here and digesting. Someone's like, oh, I have new questions for a lot of people. So, um, yeah, well, I'm glad. It's really fun to do. It's been nice to talk about this stuff. I haven't talked about the show in years and definitely is a, a point of pride in my, in my film career for sure. And I, I really love those people working with them and I, I miss Brad and I miss Robert and Martin. I got to see Martin a couple of years ago, which was really fun. It's um, a quality product. And mm-hmm. it's a product that you all it's can be cool. proud of, and totally. it's cool. Amazing. So I, it's I appreciate the only it. show that I'm talking about after all of these years. It's great. <laughs> well, there it. are a, a few people that I, I want to email you about to see if I can uh, get on the show as well um, okay. to see who you're you're in touch with. But uh, sure. uh, it, uh, I appreciate you taking so much time to uh, to share these stories, and uh, and um, thank you again. All right, thank you. So, Really you appreciate it. Take care of yourself, all right? You be well. All right. Yeah, you too. Bye. James, bye-bye. James bye-bye. Tishner, everyone, visual effects producer for uh, through Stargate SG-1 Season 7 and Season 2 of Atlantis. There's so much that is established uh, earlier on in these shows that, that come to fruition later on. And so many of these people who are responsible for it, it's just a, it's just a treat to be able to, to have them on the program and to, uh, to bring some of these stories to life again. Uh, so we have coming up, if I can get my little ducklings in a row here, we have uh fail 34 YouTuber who's going to be joining us 
in uh, just a few minutes here. He is a Stargate fan who has his own YouTube channel. He's been going through and rewatching a number of, uh, of uh, different series. And right now he's in the middle of season seven of SG-1. And he's going to be joining us uh, in just a few minutes. Anna Galvin is going to have to reschedule. So I'm going to check my email in here and see when that's going to happen. So we were originally going to have her at four o'clock, but she's going to be pushed back. John Delancey. Frank Simmons and Stargate SG-1 and Q to the rest of the Stargate fan community. He's actually going to be joining us this Wednesday, February the 15th at 11 a.m. Uh, Pacific. So I'm going to be um, uh, sending out notifications for uh, that episode in, uh, in pretty short order here. Um, but I'm going to go ahead and wrap and uh, get us set up for our next episode with Michael. Uh, Fail Whale 34. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit of uh, Stargate from... In terms of just fans. So I appreciate you tuning in. My thanks to to James Tishner uh, for joining us. Thanks so much to my moderating team, Ch- uh, Tracy, Jeremy, Reese, Anthony, Summer, Linda Gate, Gabber Fury, my producer, and um, uh, Frederick Marcoux over at Concepts Web for making uh, uh, the website possible. My name is David Reed for Dial the Gate, and I'll see you on the other side. Dial the Gate is hosted and executive produced by David Reed. The producer is Darren Sumner, co-produced by Linda Fury. The composer is Neil Acree. Animations by Bryce Ors. The production assistant is Jennifer Kirby. Moderators include Summer Roy, Keith O'Mell, Tracy Noller, Jeremy Heiner, Reese M., and Anthony Rowling. Logo design by Deborah J. Bell. Additional effects by Thomas Tots, with contributions by model makers Chris Baker, Stephen Barr, Kevin Zabo, and Tom Paris. The archivists are Linda Fury, Zachary Adams, and Fred Eric Marcoux. For general inquiries for submissions, please contact us at dialthegateshow at gmail.com. Visit our website for the upcoming schedule, as well as an archive of our past episodes, at dialthegate.com. Dial the Gate.